All right, let's begin with prayer. Our gracious God and our Father, we are mindful of the very beginning of our Savior's ministry and how he called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he continues to call his people to repentance. And Father, there is so much for us uh, to know, not just to um, understand, but to do when it comes to repentance. And ultimately, it is a saving grace. It is not just a doctrine. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us then as we investigate uh, the word of God, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word and truly take these things to heart. Yes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we want to take what we learned this morning or uh, what uh, many of you probably already knew and just simply now apply it to repentance I have to, to tell you that uh, I've, I've learned something, I've come to know something, maybe I could put it that way. Uh, one of my mentors was Dr. Richard Gaffin, one of my professors at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, and he was teaching a Sunday school series in his church. It was then Gwynedd Valley, it's now Cornerstone OPC in Ambler, Pennsylvania, and I was a pastor at Calvary OPC at the time, and he said he was teaching the Sunday school class in his church. And I was thinking, oh, I wish I could be in that Sunday school class. I don't care what he would be teaching. I just want to be there in that Sunday school class. But he was teaching the confession of faith. And then he said this. He says, I continue to marvel at uh, the brilliance of our reformed documents and the things I continue to learn. And I was just struck by that. So here was, you could argue, the greatest theologian in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he was talking about how he was continuing to learn. And I have to say, in reading theology about repentance and faith, I was shocked at how much I did not know. But I was really happy with how I kept coming back to the shorter catechism, the larger catechism in chapter 15 of our confession of faith. And just to see how brilliant these these conformed, uh, these reformed confessional documents are and how rich they are with regard to what they're they're bringing out in terms of scripture. They're not scripture. We call it subordinate standards for a reason, but they are really magnificent. In fact, I joke with my brothers in the United Reformed Church of how difficult it must be for them to minister uh, with lesser standards, Um, that they don't have the Westminster standards, how difficult it must be to have just such unwieldy reformed symbols. But um, not all of them laugh when I say that for some reason, but... They feel the same way, too. And the Heidelberg Catechism, um, the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort are greatly, greatly understated. Uh, there's some magnificent statements. So you should look at those documents, too. But reserve the very best of your heart for the, the Westminster Standards. But to say all that, just simply to read the Shorter Catechism 87, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, that's the key phrase, the first key phrase, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We're just basically teasing out that statement the next couple days, including this morning. But repentance is, first and foremost, a change of mind. That's what the word actually means, literally in the Greek. It's meta and denoia. It's, it's two words brought together, and it means that you're changing your mind. We would call it a change of heart. 
if what we're saying this morning is true, it's a change of heart, that this is where it begins, that you have to reconsider, and you have, and that's why you're bringing this, this item to God, this desire to God, because now you're seeing it in a new light, and you've, you've had a new perspective on it. You're thinking again about something in your life uh, that you used to love, and this is true for many Christians, the things that we used to, to say, the, the friends we used to keep, uh, the wisdom, at least what we thought was wisdom at the time, we've, we've turned our, our back upon those things, or they've turned their back upon us. Uh, many of us uh, got new friends, friend groups, not because we abandoned our friends, but because we refused to do some of the things that our old friends do, and they walked away from us. But there's lots of words, lots of thinking, lots of habits, lots of attitudes, lots of things about our lifestyle where there's been this change. But a lot of it began here. It's a change of of mind. I think in your handout, I, I don't have one here, so I don't know, but I think I gave you some scripture verses of epi- where you can find this. If I didn't, this is very simple. Get a concordance. It's probably in the back of your Bible. Look up the word repent and repentance, and you'll see all these instances where we're called to repentance. I don't think I need to uh, tell you that. It's interesting how this idea of repentance is kind of embedded in our doctrine of effectual calling. And effectual calling, we were just talking about this, I was talking to Ruth uh, about how uh, the idea of effectual calling in the Reformed tradition is taking John, who was big on being born again, regeneration, and taking Paul, who likes to talk about God's call upon our, our lives, like in Romans 8, and it brings them together. It's like a mash, as it were, of Paul and John. And effectual calling, uh, which it goes like this, effectual calling, short of catechism again, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. See, there it is. It's, it's our mind being convinced and persuaded of our sin and misery enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, we'll get to that tonight, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now what's interesting about that, you can see how much the mind uh, is in play in this question. It's being convinced of our sin. It's being enlightened about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see it talks about the will, we'll get to that as well. But being persuaded in our minds, in the minds of our heart about Jesus Christ. But it begins with this being convinced of our sin, uh, recognizing the urgency of the issues at stake, to quote a theologian. It's recognizing that this is an immediate, this is my immediate business. This is, I have to address this now because I understand, I'm seeing for the first time what's what's going on, Uh, recognizing uh, where I stand before God And so uh, taking this idea of effectual calling of all these things together, it explains why when you open up some Reformed theologies like Voss and and Bovink, they don't really talk about repentance as a heading. They'll talk about faith, but before faith or after faith, they'll talk about conversion. That's the word they use because they're kind of approaching it from the same perspective of this effectual calling, this idea that God is the one who regenerates us and he converts us. And they understand that conversion contains both faith and repentance. But here I really do like the fact that we have this distinct category in in the confession of faith and in our catechisms because it's in the Bible. And repentance is so important. And so I think that's why it's valuable to address it in distinction from, say, conversion. And I don't mean any disparity upon uh, these Dutch theologians uh, because Ellie is sitting in the back, and I love Ellie. 
and I want Ellie to love me. Um, but these are great forefathers, but I'm just saying that's distinctive of the continental tradition to, to talk about conversion as opposed to repentance. So anyway, you learn something new when you come to family camp. Uh, that may not be helpful to anybody here, but I just, it's too late, I already talked about it. So as we think of this change of mind, then the way I like to think of it is it's seeing our sin for what it is. That's how I'd like you to, to think upon this and are talking about the mind of the heart and are being able to see, because seeing is such an important category in the Bible. It's very important to Christ, as we saw in Matthew 13, as he defends his use of parables, quoting Isaiah, that seeing is so important. Shakespeare has this line in Sonnet 47. He says, Betwixt mine eye and heart a league is took, and each doth good turns now unto the other. What he's saying is that there's kind of a covenant, there's a relationship between my eyes and my heart, and scripture agrees totally. And in fact, in scripture, uh, the eyes represent the spiritual vision of your heart and your life. Sometimes they're even interchangeable. This is especially true in the book of Proverbs, like Proverbs 23, 26, where the father says this, he says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. And many times in scripture, you'll see, it says, in his own eyes, he was right. What is he saying in his own eyes? He's saying in his heart. And so many times this is the case. And Christ talked about seeing often. Again, think about what our Savior said in terms of preaching the parables. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But in turn, Christ says to his disciples in Matthew 13, 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. And he talks about how there's many generations who would love to see what you see. And what a privilege it is for them to see, to see Christ. And if, if this was not enough to tell us how important it is to, to take Christ seriously as he talks about seeing in the eye, we talked about the Pharisees earlier. What did, he actually had names for the Pharisees. What did he call the Pharisees many times? You can t it's, I know we're Presbyterians, but you can talk out loud. It's camp. So it's okay. You can, and you can sit farther forward too. Presbyterians are usually allergic to the first two or three rows. There's something in the fabric, so you have to sit further back because you have allergies. All right, so what did, what did Christ call the Pharisees? Okay, I don't understand anything anybody's saying. But I heard blind guides, right? Right, and what else did he say? Blind men, blind fools, blind... He said other things too, whitewashed tombs. I just want to hear the word blind. But can you imagine that? Now think about that for a second. These are the religious leaders of the nation. These are to be leading the people of God. These are the men who see the way. And he talks about the blind leading the blind. And so this is this has, it's pregnant with spiritual significance that he would talk in, in these ways. And you think about what it means to first become a Christian. It's coming to see that I'm lost and that I'm blind. I'm condemned. I'm impure, I'm cursed, or coming to see as a Christian that I'm straying, that I'm falling short, 
I'm being impure, I'm being hypocritical, or I'm closing my eyes. I'm pretending this doesn't exist. And so this is why it's so important, I think, to appreciate these categories. There are some hymns that uh, I, I, we sang often. I was raised in the Church of God, as so we had altar calls. And so there's a particular set of hymns that we sang and we sang and we sang at the end of the worship service, like Just As I Am, which you don't know, it has 27 verses to it because we kept repeating the same last verse, I'm waiting for somebody to come forward. And when it get late at night at family camp, this is what I remember as a young kid, Many times we knew the pop stand was opening soon, and so we'd elbow our friend and say, get up there, it's your turn. Just go up there and cry some tears. Let's get out of here. You know, It's not a very spiritual attitude, I know, but I'm just opening my heart to you, being honest. But one of the hymns we sang was Just As I Am. It was a hymn that when it became reform, became now even more special to me. That I was blind, but now I see. It's like I didn't realize how blind I was. And so these are, these are so, so important because I would say this, you cannot see Christ until you see your sin. How can a person become a Christian who doesn't see their sin? You can't appreciate Christ until you appreciate your sin. So we have to, to see it, and we have to see it for what it is, which means we have to see sin in light of the character of God. Now, as we look at the confession, and I don't think I printed this up for you, Confession uh, chapter 15, 2, but you have a Blue Trinity hymnal. Because you have a Blue Trinity hymnal, it means the Confession of Faith is back there. And if you have the right edition, it also has a shorter catechism. Mine did not, but has the Confession. And on page 680, you'll find this chapter. And so you can follow along there and what the Confession says. It has some of the same language of uh, the shorter catechism, obviously. But Confession 15.2 says this. By it, talking about repentance, right? By it, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. So here we have a couple of very, very helpful insights into how we should appreciate what repentance is. And, and the first thing is, is to see that sin is an offense. To see sin as an offense and to see it as a sin more than to see the danger of it. And we're going to talk more about the danger uh, tomorrow night or tomorrow morning, rather. And to see it as an offense against what or against whom? What is the, what is the, the sin as an offense against whom? How would we say that? It's against God, right? It's an offense against God, which is another way of saying it's offense against a person. Now, if there's, only, if there's only two or three things that you remember this week, this would be one of them, that we are thinking best about repentance and faith when we think about a person. When we think of repentance as that we're admitting we've sinned against a person, namely God, and when we think about faith, chiefly we think about faith as trusting a person, namely Christ, where the broader answer would be God. This is so, so important, and that's what we're gonna investigate now. It's an offense against, against God. So an example of this is found in Psalm 51, verse four. 
And in Psalm 51, verse 4, David has been exposed by the, the prophet for his sin, his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Bathsheba's husband Uriah, who he conspired to be killed, really his sin against all Israel, right? So he sinned against lots of people. And yet, you've, you know this line in Psalm 51, verse 4, it goes like this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have you thought about that? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Am I the only person who's asked a question about this? Did he only sin against God? Technically, no. But why is he putting it this way? He's putting it this way to remind, and by the way, the word there is also where that can be used for like the chief branch of a tree or a trunk, which can metaphorically refer to something that is chief or chief or foremost. Um, and that's perhaps why it's described or, or translated rather as, as alone. But what is he saying? He's saying that principally and ultimately at the heart of it, my sin is always against God. Even if I sinned against my brother or my sister or my parents or my children or somebody else in the church or my neighbor, ultimately that sin always includes this portion of it. It's against God. Even if the immediate person I sinned against was this other person, ultimately I'm sinning against God and what he requires of me. And that's what David is saying, that I sinned against these other people. He would acknowledge that. But ultimately, where is the great offense that he sinned against this God of immeasurable holiness. And it's interesting, that's what the catechism talks about. It's having that true sense of sin. So short of catechism 87 goes beyond what the confession says. The confession says out of the sight and sense of our sin, but the catechism says having a true sense. And what it's saying is that it's, it's really being able to, to drill down into where the offense lies. And that the offense was not just against another person or I sinned against my image, my reputation, or against uh, the reputation of my church. That ultimately, the true sense of it is, is I've sinned against God. I've sinned against this person. And that my sense is not just the danger. So let me walk you through a situation. So um, if you can imagine such a thing, I was 23 years old and I was an interim pastor of a church in Alaska. And you thought... I feel bad for that church. I have a 23-year-old in charge. But in the Church of God, we did not have educational requirements. And, and so you could go straight um, into the ministry without going to seminary. And such was the case. I found myself very young um, in the ministry, very inexperienced. And this is what taught me I needed to go to seminary to find out what I needed to, to learn and do because I, I discovered I had no idea what I was doing. But I had very important lessons along the way that helped me in terms of understanding the ministry. And one time, I had was an interim pastor of one church and went to the next church where I was an interim. And the, pre, the pastor who followed me in that previous church called me up and said, we have a problem, I need your help. And the issue was that he had found out <clears throat> that the treasurer had embezzled about $5,000 away from the church. And he wanted me to be there to talk with him and to confront him, and so we did. And as I listened to him, it was obvious that he, he very much regretted what he had done, but his, his questions were more like, well, who else are you going to tell, and, and what are you going to do? And what was interesting was what he was not saying. He wasn't expressing regret with regard to God that he had sinned against his brothers and sisters in Christ, 
And it was showing me this very thing the confession is saying. He was, he was concerned. He was earnest because of the danger of what he had done. He was concerned about who was going to find out. He was concerned about how is this going to affect me in my image. His wife left town because she was heartbroken. Because she understood what he had done before God and before the church. But I was seeing the very thing that confession is talking about. It's not repentance. It's the only thing upon your mind is, am I going to get caught? Who else is going to find out? What are the consequences of this? And there's no thought about how does God see this? And that's what repentance is. That's that true sense. It's understanding that, that there might be some fear, but perhaps that fear is of consequences or damaging my reputation. And that's not what repentance is. Repentance understands, first and foremost, this is an offense against the true and the living God who sees everything, who sees to my very heart, who is a holy God. I have vowed to love him and to serve him, and I have sinned against him. It's understanding that. I want you to think of something perhaps you've not thought of before. I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling you we're always learning something. But the prodigal son. Oh, we all know this. Oh, yeah, I've got that one memorized. I understand that. He had a change of heart. Because he understood that the, the servant's back, where his father was, you know, treated better than what I'm doing right now. And it's interesting what it says, that he came to himself. That's what it says. He came to himself. Came to his right mind, is what I think scripture is saying. He was outside of himself, not thinking the way he ought to be. But he comes to his right mind. He comes home. His dad greets him, and then he talks. What's the first thing out of his mouth? What does he say? I have sinned against heaven. That's the first thing he says. I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's where he starts. That he sees his sin for what it is. He's looking at it from the vantage point of God and he understands that where I begin is right here. My first order of business is to acknowledge I have sinned against God. And that's what the confession is talking about as well. That, that we begin to see that we've done is contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. Now we have to think about God's law. That it's coming to see our sin uh, in light of God's law. So in Romans 3.20, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That that law is there in part to show me what sin is. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now what Paul is saying there is that he knew what coveting was, but he didn't really understand what coveting was until the law showed him. And the law showed him that greed is a form of idolatry, that to show him that coveting means this, or you can covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's things, that there's all these ways in which coveting goes all the way down to the bottom of your heart. He says, I really, really began to understand what it was because of the law of God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What it's saying, it's there to expose these things. It's to show us what is right and wrong. 
And the reason we can say this is because the law, the moral law in particular, is what? It's an expression of God's moral will. The law is only a reflection of who God is. When we talk about uh, sinning against the law of God, as it says here in the Catechism, or in the Confession of Faith, it's telling us that we're sinning against the more will of God. You're sinning against God because this is who God is. That's what the law is. It's an expression of who God is. And it's there to show us who God is and what God is like. And by us, by contrast, to show us who we are and what we are like. It does both those things simultaneously. When we read the Ten Commandments, we're not just thinking abstractly, this is what God requires. We're thinking, this is who God is. And it's exposing what? Who I am. Because our sin is against a person. It's interesting, uh, Gerardus Voss says, seeing implies distinguishing. Seeing, really seeing implies distinguishing. I can distinguish, or I can contrast, or I can, I can compare, I can see sin in contrast or in distinction to what? Not God's law in the abstract, but to my God. God is a person. When we say God is a spirit, we, we tend to think negatively that God does not have a body as we do, to use the, the language of the first catechism. That's the negative side to it, that, that God is a spirit. But there's a positive side. When we say God is a spirit, we're saying God is a person. There is life there that animates God in the same way that I do. And so it's understanding that, that my sin is against it's, it's God, who is a person. And that's why the catechism says it's, it's out of a sense then that my sin is what? It's filthy. It's, it's odious. Well, it doesn't just come out of a vacuum. It's saying, when I consider who God is, when I see my sin as contrasted with his, his holiness and his righteousness, that's when this begins to come into view. I'm understanding what sin really is. That sin's not a mistake I made because I wasn't thinking, or, or sin is this, this thing I can make excuses for. No, my sin is against this person who made me. This, this person who, who went to great extremes to save me from my sin. This person that I claim to follow. This person that I, would, I confessed as my Lord and my Savior. I've sinned against him. And against his holy and righteous character. So it sings sin in light of the character of God. That's when I begin to truly see what my sin is. And to see the offense of it. But see, I think the, the catechism and the confession are teaching us something that's very helpful, especially as Christians, and that's to see our sin in light of all the character of God, in light of all that, that God is. So look at, look at confession 15.2 again with me. By it a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also the filthiness and odious of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, that's what we're just talking about. But now, what does it say? There's a semicolon there. And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, such as our penitent. Do you see, this is where the knowledge comes in, where the mind of the heart comes in. On the one hand, I, I see my, my sin for what it is when I compare it to the righteous and holy character of God. But now it's saying, but also as I think of that sin, 
And as I see it in light of the character of God, namely in light of his mercy. You see, there's apprehension of God's mercy. This is what makes repentance repentance and not just regretting that I got caught. Or this is what uh, differentiates this from somebody like Judas who, who sees his sin, regrets it, but falls into despair because there's what? There's no apprehension of mercy. And we're going to get to this more tomorrow. But see, this is very important. You see what the mind of the heart is doing? It's, it's, it's laying hold of two things simultaneously. That repentance has a side of it which, which is saddened and, and hates his sin, which we'll talk about again tomorrow. I'm going to stop saying that. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. But on the one hand, it, it sees its sin in light of the character of God and his holiness and righteousness, but there's this other part too. It doesn't do that without laying hold of the second thing, namely it apprehends the mercy of God there is towards those who come in repentance, that there's hope. And see, this is key. And this is why we understand that, that faith and, and repentance are commingling. This is why you can't separate them. This is why they, they kind of meld into each other, as it were. There's this, there's this hopefulness. There's this flicker of, of faith that knows there's light at the end of this tunnel, that though I'm, I'm crying buckets of tears because I'm so ashamed of myself, and yet there is this cleansing effect taking place because I'm looking ahead, and I perceive the mercy of God that there is in Christ that there's this, this hopefulness, this apprehension of the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this sort of hopefulness in places where God calls his people to repentance. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Joel chapter 2, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. You see what Joel is saying there. Offer me real repentance. He's saying through Joel, bring to me real repentance. Don't just tear your cloths. Rend your heart. And what will you find? He lays out this, this beautiful hope of the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. You see something similar to this in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. I want us to see something here that I think is just wonderful. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. And in general, we would say this is the call of, of repentance. Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is the part you know, you've heard. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now what we often do when we read this passage, we focus upon verses 8 and 9 where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And there we talk about the sovereignty of God or we talk about his transcendence and how God is, is transcendent and we are, are creatures and this great distance between us and we're right to do that. But that's actually grounding the, the previous thought. It's telling us why the previous thought 
It's true. And it's John Calvin in his commentary who says, what God is saying here is the reason that I can forgive you. That's the promise that's laid out in verse 7. Let him return that, that God might have compassion. Repent and come to this God who's filled with mercy. The reason God could do this is because he is not like us. His thinking is not like our thinking and his way is not like ours. Because we are a people who refuse to forgive. We are a people who find it very, very difficult to forgive. We are a people who we, we harbor bitterness in our hearts. We hold grudges for long periods of time. And Calvin is saying what God is saying is that he's not like that. Now let me give you one piece of evidence to suggest that he's, he's right. Go to Psalm 103. It's one of the few places where you see this, this common phrase that you'll pick up on when you turn to Psalm 103. And let's start at verse 8. And you'll, you'll hear the phrase when we come to it. Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You see the common phrase? As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's the phrase that links both these things. And it's part of the way that Calvin makes his argument. What God is talking about here is his steadfast love is, is as high as the heavens. It's similar to what Paul says. He says, I dare you to comprehend the love of God that knows no length or height or width or depth. You cannot get your arms around this. It's bigger than you are. And I think what's helpful about the confessional standards are showing us this very same truth. We need to see our sin in light of all of God's nature, not just his righteousness and his holiness, but also his mercy and his grace. And it's interesting that after that, it talks about in the rest of confession too, it's in light of these things, this is why a person grieves for their sin and hates their sin. Is it not interesting that it doesn't say it grieves for their sin and that we hate our sin in light of the righteousness of God and how odious and filthy our sin is in light of that, but it waits until it, it says it's after our apprehension of his mercy. Now, I remember as, as a child, uh, growing up with a father who's, whose word was the gospel. My father never had to raise his voice because I knew he meant what he said. He put the fear of God in us, as it were, if I could put it that way. And he was a very loving father. But he was very clear about this. And I, I always feared uh, wronging him or doing something bad. And that was something that would motivate me many times to, to listen to him and, and to obey him and, and not do what was wrong. But there's another side uh, to obedience, and it's one time when I was with the, uh, the wrong crowd, that's the way I'm going to excuse my sin, and did some things I shouldn't have done. They were vandalistic in nature. I was a teenager, and I knew what I was doing, and got caught, faced the consequences of it. But it was soon after our grandparents were visiting us, and my grandfather, Grandpa Trox, was at the table, whom I adored, and my dad looked at the table and he said, Grandpa, do you know what your grandson did? And he told him. And I thought that was cheap. I thought that was low the belt. That was wrong. And my grandpa heard that, turned, looked at me, 
And he said, oh, Craig. That, that was it. I was undone. Why? Because I love this man. When we sin against somebody that we love, or somebody who loves us, that's when we grieve. Is it not true? When you confess something to your spouse and you see that look in their face, that's the punishment. When you know you've disappointed them. It's not just sinning against God's holiness, it's sinning against his love. And we think of this great love towards us. And the many, many ways that we disappoint him and fail him, that's what breaks our heart. That's what the confession is saying. That when I repent, I, f I feel the weight of my transgression. And I see that contrast between God and me and how different we are. But I also feel the weight of my sin in light of the love and the mercy of God. And that's when I rejoice that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. I so love this, this line by Richard Sibbs. He says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And there's those times that we feel that our, our rebellion and the perversions of our hearts, they go all the way down. But you know what? They're not as deep as his love. And they can't separate us from his love. And there's no way they can separate us from his love when we come in repentance to him. But we need to get our arms around this, what repentance is. This is a saving grace. This is, this is good news. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed. It's not a curse. It's a blessing pronounced by Christ upon those who mourn, who look within, and because of what they see and what they do not see, they come before God and they mourn. And Christ says, this is, this is a good beginning. This is something I can, I can work with. And this is why we have such hope in our repentance, because we understand these things. We understand this one whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so much deeper. They're so much greater, so much richer. And so this is why we need to embrace repentance as not just a duty or something we're commanded to do, but to see the good in it and to find hope in this, that he wants us to open our hearts and express to him not just our concerns and our fears, but also our sin. And to express it freely, knowing that he will forgive us, that he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I think we have three minutes, which is so convenient, because it means we can take no questions. <laughs> and I'll probably just start crying. But I hope you can appreciate, again, you know, what scripture is telling us about this and, and what a wonderful thing it is that our God hears us in our repentance. But to know that in that repentance we have such hope. It's because of the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we do pray that you would continue to teach us, that you would instruct us. We thank you, Father, for those who have gone before us and who thought so carefully about these things, that have been such capable guides, but we thank you most of all for the word of God, which has proven again this morning to be so useful to us. Indeed, it, it teaches us, it rebukes us, but it also corrects us and it trains us in how to see. 
We thank you that you've enabled us to see not just our sin, but our Savior. And we look to him, as Scripture tells us to do, who took up the cross for us that he might redeem us and save us from the condemnation of our sin, but also from its corrupting power. We rejoice in him as crucified and raised for us, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.